0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 10.45 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. A witty retort, well timed. Sir Winston Churchill was the master of the comeback. Once, when asked by a fellow parliamentarian, Mr. Churchill, must you fall asleep while I'm speaking? Churchill replied, No, it's pr- purely voluntary. <clears throat> when uh, Bessie Braddock chided him, Winston, you are disgustingly drunk, Churchill countered, Bessie, my dear, you are disgustingly ugly but tomorrow I shall be sober, and you will still be disgustingly ugly. But my favorite was uh, when Lady Nancy Astor remarked, Winston, if you were my husband, I'd poison your coffee. And Churchill quipped back, Nancy, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. (laughs) Perhaps not the most Christ-like of comebacks, but... This morning we're going to be considering together how we should respond as followers of Jesus in in a Christ-like way in the face of opposition. And uh, as usual over these past few months now, as we've been studying our way through the book of Acts together, we're going to be learning from uh, the example of the Apostle Paul, who is going to encounter uh, opposition this morning in four different forms in our text for today, from four different groups of opponents. And so we're going to seek to apply each of these to our own lives because as Christians, we should face opposition in this world. Jesus promised as much to us. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, he said. Paul also promised it. He promised all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so the question is not if we'll be persecuted, but how and how we will respond. And so the very first question that you and I, I think, need to ask ourselves this morning before we even dive into our text, the context for the text is this. Are we experiencing opposition for our faith in Christ? We should, in an ungodly world... We seek to live godly lives. As Paul said, we should be persecuted in some extent. Do we experience opposition? If not, then I fear not only will this sermon prove to be pretty irrelevant for you, uh, but more importantly, you may be found to be in disobedience of your Savior Jesus this morning. Jesus said, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Christians don't win popularity contests. Uh, If you are winning popularity contests in your life these days, it's a pretty good sign that your faith is probably too private. You know, our, our faith is always to be personal, but never private. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You don't light a lamp and then Hide it under a bushel basket. You put it out on a stand for all to see. But Jesus also warned us that people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Therefore, if Christ's light is in you, and if you are letting his light shine through you in a dark world, you are sure to be opposed. So here is my plea for us this morning, brothers and sisters. Please let us not make it all the way through our study of the book of Acts. Uh, we've got only a few sermons left in Acts, a few chapters left. May we not make it all the way through Acts without putting this actually into practice. You know, uh, James calls us in Scripture to not be just doers of the, uh, hearers of the word, but doers. You don't just hear the word, do it. And the book of Acts is all about our commission as a church to take the gospel into all the world, to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. Are we doing it? Have we at least taken it across the street to our neighbors, across the office place to our coworkers? Are we doing it? I fear, if we haven't, that we will have wasted the last eight months of study together are not being doers and hearers only. But listen, I don't start with that context to try and guilt you into living boldly for Christ this week. I want to try and guide you into doing it. Uh, More specifically, I want to let God's word guide us into living for Christ boldly this week. And so with each of these four forms of opposition that Paul is going to encounter, I want to offer you not only the biblical response to it that Paul Uh, exemplifies for us, but also a practical recipe for how to make sure we're encountering that persecution in the first place. Jesus said the opposite of woe to you when people speak well is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Do you want to be blessed this week? I want to try and help you be blessed by being persecuted this week, by being opposed for your faith. And I'm going to suggest with each of these four Uh, forms of opposition, how we can do that. But first, let's go to the Lord once again in prayer as we begin. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes this morning to behold the wonders, the mysteries, the beauty of the gospel in your word. I thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Uh, that you don't just want to guilt us into duty and obedience this morning, but you want to guide us into it through your word and through your spirit. So I pray now, would you, Holy Spirit, would you touch our hearts, convict our hearts, uh, encourage us where we need encouragement. But more than anything, would you would you draw us into a deeper love for Jesus, a deeper understanding of the gospel and what he's done for us, and a deeper desire, not just duty, but desire to follow in his footsteps and living boldly for Christ, come what may, even in the face of opposition in this world, that Jesus, your name, might be made famous in and around us. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Four biblical responses in the face of opposition faith. Number one, when we're criticized, we yield. We are going to pick up the story where we left off in verse 15 of chapter 21. Paul has just completed, you remember, his third and final missionary journey last week, and now like Jesus, he's constrained by the Spirit. Paul sets his face on Jerusalem despite knowing full well the fate that awaits him there. Like like Jesus, again, imprisonment many afflictions, suffering, and ultimately death, Paul goes. So we pick up in verse 15 and we read, After these days we got ready. We, Luke, the author, our author and Paul and the rest of their traveling missionary companions, we got ready and we went to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. But when they heard it, they glorified God, but they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? For they will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses." ...so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you... ...but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment... ...that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood... ...what's been strangled from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them. And he went into the temple, giving notice... When the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So the first form of opposition that Paul encounters here in Jerusalem isn't from those outside the church. It's from within. It's from Jewish Christians who judge and they criticize Paul for not adhering strictly enough To the law, the Old Testament law, that is, the law of Moses, and for teaching others to do the same. Now, in reading Paul's own letters, it's not hard to see where this criticism is coming from. Paul says in Romans 2, that physical circumcision is of no value unless you've got a spiritually circumcised heart. The the sin is cut out, made new. That's what's important. That's what matters now under the new covenant of grace. He repeats that again in Galatians 5, 6. Uh, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. And earlier, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul described the law as our guardian that came, came until Christ had come. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, handmaiden. And so according to Paul, the law was like a... Uh, a, a night nurse. It was a security blanket. But now it's time to grow up. You know, my son sleeps with his lovey. He's two years old. It's cute now. When he's 22, I'm sad. Perhaps even a little creepy. Uh, but these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are essentially saying, we like our lovey. You know, our law, it's, it's familiar. It's comfortable to us. Paul, don't take that away from us. And then here's poor James. He feels like he's caught in the middle. I want to give James, half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he's he's just trying to avoid conflict. When he says, essentially, Paul, can you you please just play along? Like, indulge them. Here, I've got an idea. We've got four guys in our church. They're in the middle of fulfilling their Nazarite vow, Numbers chapter 6, super, law, uh, Jewish uh, ceremony, why, why don't you publicly support them so the rest of the church can see that you're not anti-Torah, you're not anti-law, anti-Judaism. Meanwhile, verse 25, we'll draft another letter to your Gentile churches, making sure they're not too Gentile. It'll be identical to the one we sent already back in chapter 15 after the Jerusalem Council, you remember, but that'll, that'll help appease these ultra-Jews in our church here in Jerusalem who are so pro-law. Now, Paul could have responded with, "Um, I don't think so. If your church is still stuck on the law, if they haven't realized Christ's sufficiency by now, that's their problem, not mine. Not to mention the fact that Paul himself, you remember, had fulfilled Personally, Nazarite vow back in chapter 18, toward the end of his second missionary journey, Paul could have said, look, my pre- previous record of, of law-keeping, personally, speaks for itself. If you've got a problem with it, that's on you. But Paul doesn't do that. What does Paul do here? Verse 26, he took them in, he purified himself, and he accompanies them to the temple. Paul yields to their request. Why? Because he was a sellout? No. Because he was a selfless servant of the church. Paul is following his own advice, exhortation here from 1 Corinthians 8, where he writes not to defile a weaker brother's conscience. Don't be a stumbling block. In Corinth, you remember the, the issue was food offered to idols. And Paul had wrote to the more mature believers in Corinth, listen, I know that idols are fake. You know that idols are fake. But if these less mature Christians in your church in Corinth, if, if they're afraid of sinning by eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol, even if the idol is really not, it's just a piece of wood. It's just a piece of stone. We know that. But, but if, if, if you're going to offend them, their conscience, just don't eat it. Yield for the sake of your weaker brother. Our best uh, family friends back in, home in, in Jackson are Southern Baptists, like real Southern Southern Baptists. Uh, and I, I know that drinking alcohol is not a sin. But I don't bring a six-pack over for dinner when they invite my family over for dinner to make a point. I, I don't do that. That is not the way of Christian love and unity. Another example of, of this principle in practice today, in just about every sermon that I preach Every Sunday here, I can think of a couple analogies, illustrations that I kind of want to include, help illustrate the point, but I refrain from, I go back and edit them out before I preach because I know that someone would get upset by the idea that my pastor would watch that show or listen to that podcast, and it's safer for me to to omit that so as not to be a stumbling block and prevent any of you from being able to hear clearly the gospel. I don't want my words to get in the way of you hearing the gospel this morning, the good news of who Jesus is and of what he's done for you. So, like Paul, who said, Paul, uh, Paul says, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. He says, though not being myself under the law, I've been set free from the curse of the law, but I'll still play along. I'll yield that I might win those under the law. On the other hand, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Remember, Jesus came not to abrogate, undo the law, but to fulfill it. Bring a new law, an even harder law. Just love people perfectly and love God perfectly. Whole heart, mind, soul, strength all the time. Just do that and you'll fulfill the whole law. It's harder than following all 613, by the way, of the Old Testament. But Paul says, look, I'm still under the law of Christ, but I, I live like I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That that, that somebody might hear the good news of Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. That's what I want you to hear. I don't want to stand in the way of you hearing that. Now, I told you with each of these, I want to help you get persecuted this week by living for Jesus and so if you are not currently experiencing this kind of friendly fire from fellow Christians who are judging and criticizing you let me try and suggest how you might start by by making a major kingdom impact if you if you go out and you are just killing it in ministry if you are just living on fire for the sake of the gospel in the world and, and in your, your witness and relationship with others, you will be criticized by Christians who aren't doing that, frankly, because they're too busy sitting at home thumping their Bibles, looking for an excuse to reprimand you or me for something to make any real kingdom impact for themselves. You just read the comments section, any post, any article, any sermon from any of the best preachers out there today, Tim Keller, John Piper, J.D. Greer, these guys are all hated on by so-called Christians. I think about one of my own ministry heroes, David Platt, endured just last year being sued by members of his own church on false allegations. He could have said, forget y'all, I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. But he didn't. He yielded To the investigation, let the truth set you free. He yielded. He didn't even throw them out of his church for attempting an insurrection. Because when we're criticized, even by fellow believers, this is the way of Christ. We yield. We defer whenever possible, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves. This is the way of Christ. Number two. When attacked, we endure. When we're attacked, we endure, as believers. We read on, verse 27. When the seven days of Paul's purification were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut and they were seeking to kill him. Remember all those riots that Paul started back in Asia and Macedonia, Achaia, on his missionary journeys, Uh, especially amongst the Jews who didn't take kindly to Paul interrupting their synagogue services to talk about Jesus. Well, now those same Jews all find themselves in Jerusalem for Passover, and guess who's also there? Public enemy number one, the Apostle Paul. And if you thought that the Jewish Christians were legalistic, They had nothing on the Jewish Jews of the day who were ready to kill Paul here because in verse 29 they supposed that Paul had brought a Gentile, Trophimus, with him into the temple into the court of Israel within the temple complex reserved only for Jewish men. You had the court of the Gentiles where anybody could go. The temple's supposed to be a blessing to all nations. They could go and worship. Then you had the court of the women for Jewish women and men, the court of Israel for only Jewish men, court of the priest, etc., etc. Well, uh, no one actually saw Paul bring Trophimus into the court of Israel. They couldn't have because Paul didn't do it. He wouldn't have done it. Remember, Paul was being all things to all people. Paul did not go out of his way to offend the Jews. The cross is offense enough. But that doesn't stop them from falsely accusing him here of assuming the worst and accusing him of a crime he didn't even commit. What's the application for us this morning? What do we do as believers when we're attacked, even wrongfully attacked, on false charges? What does Paul do? He simply endures their onslaught. He is, Paul is conspicuously silent here. We don't hear a peep out of Paul at the end of chapter 21 or in chapter 22. He's going to be attacked again, verses 22 and 23. They're going to try and kill him again. But Paul remains silent like Jesus, the lamb who was led to the slaughter who opened not his mouth, Jesus silently endured his opponent's lies, their mockery, even their torture. What about us? All too often today, I fear that we, instead of enduring patient endurance, faithful endurance, we either avoid or we're guilty of attacking back. We avoid you know, we, we go along with the crowd. We, we go ahead and we sign the office congratulatory card for our coworkers' gay wedding so we don't have to endure the condemning sideways glances from the others in our office when our name is the only one not on the card. So we don't have to endure an uncomfortable conversation with HR, our boss, about tolerance in the workplace. We just want to avoid it. Or at the opposite extreme, others of us Put myself more in this category maybe. Others of us maybe even seek out the fight. We like, we like a little fight because we love attacking back. We hope that our angry atheist nephew will take the bait and he'll reply to that Facebook post so I can lay into him, so I can set him straight. Because that's ministry, right? And that's being a witness. Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil, but turn the other cheek. Turning the other cheek means that you don't slap back, but it also means you're not a doormat either. You don't just run away and avoid conflict. We endure. This is what we're called to. The third way, the way of Christ. Not attacking back, not avoiding endurance. Now, to back it up a step, once again, how, how do we even make sure that we get attacked in the first place? might seem like a silly question these days, but you speak the truth. Listen, the truth is, you don't have to be militant about it. If you simply speak the truth, God's truth, God's word, in today's world, you will eventually, but inevitably, be opposed for it, be attacked for it. Speaking of Churchill, here's another great, great quote. Churchill said, you have enemies? Good. That means you stood up for something sometime in your life. Now, we've got to speak the truth in love. parenthetical there, Ephesians 4.15. If you don't speak the truth, you're avoiding. If you don't speak it in love, then you're perhaps guilty of just attacking back, returning evil for evil. We want to do neither. Third way, we speak the truth in love to be a countercultural witness for Christ, the way that Paul did, the way that Jesus himself did. Number three, when misunderstood, we explain. When criticized, we play along. When attacked, we endure. But when misunderstood, we explain. Continuing on in verse 31 here, Paul doesn't rush to his own defense. Instead, the Roman tribune, this commander of this local garrison of troops, he steps in to Paul's defense. We read, and as they were seeking to kill Paul, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers, centurions, and ran down to them. And when they, the Jews, saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who Paul was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. As he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him instead to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. They had forcibly removed Paul from the mob. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. Verse 37 now, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? I exist in moi, ipin, ti, pro se. And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Uh, historian Josephus tells us more about this Egyptian rebel. We don't have time to get into it this morning. Suffice it to say, Paul was not him. Uh, so the Tribune here, whose name we're going to learn later, the Tribune in chapter 23 is Claudius Lysias. He mistakes Paul for a criminal. So innocent mistake misunderstanding so we learn when we're misunderstood as believers don't overreact we just simply explain we clarify verse 39 Paul replied no I'm a Jew I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no obscure city I beg you sir permit me to speak to the people Paul says listen commander if you'll let me I'll explain myself not only to you but to them too This this crowd that's trying to kill me. And as we're going to see here, as we get to chapter 22 now, Paul's not just interested in explaining himself to them. He's going to do that. Specifically, Paul is going to commend his Jewish credentials to them. After all, he's being charged with being anti-Jewish, anti-law. And so Paul's going to go super Jew on them. But even more than that, Paul wants to explain his testimony to them, his story of radical life transformation by the supernatural work of the resurrected Jesus. That's what he wants them to see and hear in his testimony. He's going to relive his testimony. You think all the way back to chapter 9. This is almost word for word. Chapter 9. Paul's dramatic Damascus Road conversion that we studied together on Easter Sunday, if you've been here that long and remember. Uh, and so I, I'm going to be quick here. I'm going to simply read Paul's words for us and try and keep the commentary uh, brief, long passage. But as you listen, just remember, the, the, the again, the profoundness of what God has done in Paul's life and in in envision him here sharing it with them we we read and when claudius lysias had given him permission paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush he addressed them in the hebrew language i'm not going to try and read the whole hebrew section for you it wouldn't make any sense but the hebrew commending his jewishness to them once again saying brothers and fathers brothers fathers my fellow jews my kinsmen my family Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, the Mecca of Judaism, educated at the feet of the famous Gamaliel grandson of Hillel, the most respected rabbi in antiquity, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Paul calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees in Philippians 3, 5. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, verse 4, he says, I was so zealous, I persecuted this way, Christians, to the death. You think you're passionate about the law? I killed him over the law. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women, As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He says, some of y'all here were, were there. You remember how I was, how passionate I was. He says, but as I was on my way and I drew near to Damascus, here's the turning point, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Paul says, and since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. Verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, Paul, again, is commending not only his own Jewishness to them, but that of his fellow Christians. He's trying to make the case, look, we're just as Jewish as y'all are. We're just as Jewish as anybody. It's just that we've met the Messiah, our Messiah, the one that our people have waited for for thousands of years. He's come. His name is Jesus. Worship him. Verse 12, Ananias, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, good Jewish reputation, even though he's a believer in Jesus, he came to me, and standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, it's a nickname for the Messiah, straight from the Old Testament, the righteous one, Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17, Paul concludes, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Now, this story is new to us. This is not recorded earlier in the book of Acts. But Paul is probably including it here now as part of his testimony to prove that he's not anti-temple. It's like, I was hanging out of the temple all the time, even after my conversion, I'm not anti I just know that some, something greater than the temple has come, Jesus. So I'm at the temple worshiping Jesus. And he says, as I was there praying, verse 18, I saw him, Jesus. I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul saying, look, if, if anybody should have a powerful testimony to these Jews in Jerusalem, it should be me. Lord, leave me here. I don't care. I'll suffer for your sake. Leave me here. Let me witness to them. Let me share my testimony of what you've done for me in my life. But verse 21, he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul, I've got other plans for you. You're going to get to witness to him eventually in chapter 21 and 22. But you've got three missionary journeys to make first. I've got many other sheep not in this flock that you've got to bring in for me first. God's ways are not our ways. Now, at this, verse 21, mention of the Gentiles, the Jews get so upset by the mere suggestion that God might have called Paul to go minister to these Gentiles, Jews in that day believed that God created Gentiles as for the sole purpose of kindling the fires of hell. That was a, a, a Jewish proverb back then. And so the idea that God actually wanted to include these Gentiles in his redemptive plan of salvation. Oh, verse 22, up to this word, the word Gentile, they were listening to him. But then, he said, Gentile, and they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. They're just going to beat it out of poor Paul now, but when... They had stretched him out for the whips. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul, of course, knew the answer legally was no. Again, he's, he's explaining himself to them. A misunderstanding. They, they didn't realize that Paul was a Roman citizen that has rights. It's a very rare thing for Jews in that day, but a very important thing. Verse 26, so when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? You're going to have us beat this man? He's a, this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. Different theories on how that came to be. but So those, verse 29, who were about to examine him, withdrew from him immediately and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You weren't even allowed to bind a Roman citizen, imprison him without due cause, due, due process. And so there's a lot here to unpack. The simple point I want to draw out for us, again, as we think about our, our, our response in the face of opposition, sometimes we might think we're being criticized or attacked, but really we're just being misunderstood. And I think that's an important distinction to make to be able to discern the difference because when we're misunderstood in our faith, we don't just patiently endure it. There's, there's no benefit in Paul letting himself be senselessly flogged here uh, when they just don't understand who he is. And you don't, certainly don't attack back, as we've already said. No, sometimes you just need to explain yourself, just clarify the situation and specifically this morning, I want to highlight for us the importance, like Paul, of knowing your testimony. If you're going to explain anything, clarify anything, we need to clarify our testimony of faith. If, if you really want to get serious about being a witness for Christ, then your personal testimony, if you're a believer this morning, is perhaps the best Means of evangelism that God has given you for three quick reasons. Number one, it's personal. Your testimony is yours. You should know it like the back of your hand. Some of you I know have told me, you know, I struggle with memorization. The Romans Road, even memorizing John three sixteen, really bad memory. Even the the mnemonic. You know, I tried to to, to give us some time ago mnemonic uh, four point gospel summary. Uh, God is supreme, we are sinful, Jesus is savior, faith is sufficient. Even if you struggle to remember, memorize those 12 words, gospel summer, you can still share your testimony with someone. You don't have to memorize it. It's just your life story. Just share what God has done for you. Share it with others. It's personal. Number two, it's also irrefutable. No one can argue with it. What are they going to say? Nuh-uh. Jesus didn't change your life for the better. That's not that's not true. It's 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 beyond debate. And finally, number three, hopefully it's beyond debate. <laughs> hopefully the proof is in the pudding. Hopefully Jesus has changed your life. I mean it's dramatic. And finally, number three, it's powerful. Your testimony is not just some abstract set of theological principles that a person may or may not agree with. It is the evidence of the power of God at work within you, God's very own Holy Spirit, transforming you from a child of wrath into a child of the living God. That is powerful. I don't care if you were formerly a murderer like Paul Or if you grew up in the church and you were the good kid who had to be saved from your own self-righteousness. No one is born a Christian. That means if you are a believer this morning, if you are saved this morning, you had to be born again. God had to do a supernatural work by the power of his Holy Spirit to make you his own, to, to adopt you into his own Heavenly, spiritual, family. And however God accomplished that in your life, it was nothing short of a miracle. A supernatural work of God. And so, we share it. We, we share it. We explain for others what God has done for us. Listen, don't think that you're being humble by not sharing your testimony with others. Told rightly, your testimony doesn't make much of you. It makes much of Jesus. Jesus it's God getting all the glory and the credit for what he did to save you in spite of you. You're not being humble, you're being disobedient if you don't share it, if you don't explain it. Bear witness for what he's done for you. Now, how does a Christian get misunderstood in the first place? To even have these gospel opportunities, these open windows for sharing, for being a witness. How do we even... Get prompted with those opportunities by being misunderstood and, and people asking questions about what's going on. We do it by sticking to the gospel. You stick to the gospel in a world that is filled with labels trying to pin you down into one camp or the other. A Christian is going to stand out like a sore thumb because we don't fit so neatly into the world's boxes. Uh, we should be just as misunderstood as Jesus was. Jesus was too liberal for the conservatives of his day. He was too conservative for the liberals of his day. Jesus got it from all, every side, every angle. <laughs> Criticism, uh, misunderstanding. Is that true of us? Does your allegiance to Jesus make you tough to pigeonhole, to pinpoint? Like, wait a minute, you're telling me that you take issue with both Trump and Biden? That you got beefs with socialism and capitalism, CRT and racism, Christian purity culture and secular immodesty? Whose side are you on here? I'm on Jesus' side. I'm on his side. And that's going to make me misunderstood by all your categories and your camps in this world. Lastly, number four when we're overwhelmed, we overcome. Paul was criticized by his fellow Christians. He was attacked by his Jewish opponents. He was misunderstood by the Roman outsiders, and now he's going to be overwhelmed by all of them, all at once here in chapter 23. But as we read through it, I want to show you how Paul overcame this onslaught by remaining thoroughly Christ-like at every turn. That's how we overcome the world, friends. Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is the overcomer. Jesus overcame, and it's only by sticking with him that we can overcome too by the word of our testimony faith in him. Chapter 22, verse 30 sets it up, the context, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews. It's like, how many times can we try and, you know, beat this, get this out of this guy? It's like, well, maybe if you didn't interrupt me every time I open my mouth, um, but but he's being accused by the Jews. Lysias unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. So He brings them all in the same room again, hasn't learned from Two mistakes now, but he brought Paul down, he set him before them, let's all hash this out, try and keep a level head, so, but now Paul is going to get overwhelmed. Both the Roman outsiders, Jewish uh, opponents, all at once. Verse 1 of chapter 23 now, looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Remember, Jesus asked his opponents, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Just like Jesus was struck, he talked back to the high priest. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you would order me to be struck? Remember, Jesus rebuked his opponents. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You think you're so pro-law? You've got to break the law to have an issue with me. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Jesus was constantly quoting scripture to his opponents. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial here. Verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit. They were the theological liberals of the day, but then uh, the, the Pharisees acknowledged them all. They were the, the biblical literalists of their day. This is reminiscent of all the times Jesus, you know. you. Used wisdom and discernment to be able to silence his opponents by cleverly turning the tables back on them. You think of when they asked him, Should we pay taxes or not? Jesus said, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Again, it's a third way. It's not like we can kill him for this or the Romans are going to kill him for this. We don't know what to do with that. When he asked them, how, how the Christ could be David's son and yet David calls him Lord? Jesus was always using wisdom to silence his opponents. Well, Paul might have tried to use it to silence them here. But it kind of has the opposite effect. Uh, They they don't get silent. They get inflamed. And so verse, but at least now it's not at him. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up. And they contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. Uh, What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? They're doubling down now. They've changed their position. Sadducees will double But they're like... Well, now, you know, we got to stay true to our camp. And if, if Paul is saying, you know, he's been talked to by angels and, you know, we, now Paul has managed to turn them against each other. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So he commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. One of these days he'll eventually get into the barracks to safety. It's just they're constantly... Having to drag poor Paul away. But now look at how the passage ends in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Speaking of Christlikeness, remaining Christlike, Paul follows God's will, come what may. Just like Jesus who prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of your wrath pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus obediently, submissively, obeyed the Father's will all the way to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. How do we make sure that the world overwhelms us with opposition just be Christ-like if you are Christ-like they will hate you, Jesus said, if the world persecuted me, they will persecute you also like rabbi, like disciple, but how do we overcome that opposition that overwhelming opposition, it's the very same way we overcome by remaining Christ-like take heart I have overcome the world. Abide in me, Jesus says. Brothers and sisters, when we are criticized by fellow Christians, when we are attacked by opponents of the gospel, when we're misunderstood by those unfamiliar with the gospel, and when we're just overall overwhelmed by the worldliness of living in a fallen, broken wicked world, will we, like Paul, like Jesus, respond with godliness, Christ-likeness, when our faith is under fire? May it be so. May it be so.